Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 13th of August 2018 and this is episode 76. On today's programme, I talk to Dr Andrea McKenzie, Associate Professor at York University, Toronto, Canada, about Canadian nurses' war narratives of the Great War. I spoke to Andrea over the interweb from her home in Ontario. Andrea, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. We're going to talk about your research uh, today into the role, experience, impact and war narratives of Canadian nurses serving during the Great War. I wonder whether you could start by uh, just giving us some ideas about uh, how you became interested in this research and got tied up with the First World War. Well, that's an interesting question, Tom. First, before I begin, I'd like to thank you and the WFA for having me on your program. It's an honor to be here. I remember the distinct moment when I became interested in nurses' experiences of the First World War. In the late 1980s, I was working in industry as a tech writer and reading war narratives in my spare time. I came across Vera Britton's War Diary, Chronicles of Youth, in a Toronto public library. It fascinated me so much, I went on a hunt for Testament of Youth, and I then started looking for Canadian wartime nurses' experiences. What I found was that three nurses and only three had published memoirs, none of them were in print, and that nurses' role in the war seemed to have been forgotten, though there was plenty out there about soldiers. So that was a life-changing experience. I became so fascinated by research done in archives and in old newspapers that I actually went back to school and did a PhD. Yes, unfortunately, that happened to me as well. The cult gets you and you get sucked into it. <laughs> and Yes, it certainly does. Yes, it's my midlife crisis and I'm trying to make a career of it. But, well, that is another subject. Now, I wonder, before we actually obviously talk about individuals, could we sort of think about the, the size and nature of um, the deployment of Canadian nurses during the war, sort of how they were organised and how many there were? In 1914, only 104 Canadian nurses went across to England with the Canadian Expeditionary Force. That expanded over the course of the war to over 2,800 nurses. Now, the Canadian nursing system differed somewhat from the British because Canadian nurses were considered an integral part of the Canadian Army, and they held the relative rank, pay, and privileges of officers. So nursing sisters held the relative rank of lieutenant, matrons that of captain, and their matron in chief that of major. They also had very distinctive uniforms. They wore navy blue dress uniforms with a double row of brass buttons, and they were nicknamed bluebirds for their working uniform, which was a light medium blue, again with a double row of brass buttons, and also the stars of rank on the shoulders. The Canadian nurses served on almost all of the war fronts. So they served on the Western Front, but three hospitals of nurses also served during the Gallipoli campaign. Two hospitals went to Lemnos, one went to Cairo. Several Canadian hospitals were situated in Salonika. And, of course, 
1918, there were four casualty clearing stations, I believe about six general hospitals and six stationary hospitals stationed in France. That's not to mention the general hospitals and the convalescent hospitals that were set up in England and, of course, all the way back to Canada. And were they um, tied to particular Canadian units or did they serve the army as a whole? They served the army as a whole. The Canadian Army Medical Corps was set up in units, hospital units. And so a hospital would be organized, it would go overseas, and it would contain a contingent of nurses. But the nurses were moved around quite frequently. They went where they were needed, so they would change hospitals. And of course, it was every nurse's ambition to serve at the front of the lines in the casualty clearing stations, receiving the wounded directly from the front. So you've got, you've got these nurses who, who volunteer. Why did they volunteer? What was their motivation to enlist uh, it, during the war? Overall, it was the very real sense that their skills were needed. One of the nurses, Kate Wilson, actually does say it was a combined sense of patriotism but also knowing that wounded and ill men would need good nursing care. And the Canadian nurses felt that they could provide that. There was fierce competition for places overseas. So, Andrew, in your research, you've looked at Mildred Forbes, Laura Holland and Kate Wilson. Who were these individuals? Could you tell us a bit about each of them? Yes, of course. Mildred Forbes was from a well-to-do family in Montreal, contrary to expectations or assumptions about nursing. Nursing in Canada was considered quite a respectable profession by the First World War. So it did attract the daughters of elite families. Mildred Forbes was born in Montreal to a well-to-do family. She was connected both to some of Canada's most influential political families and to some of the wealthiest families in Montreal. Her brother founded the Children's Hospital in Montreal. He was a doctor who did go overseas with the Canadian troops. And Mildred Forbes herself entered the Montreal General Hospital Nurse Training School when she was 21. She was born in 1884, so she would have been around 30 when she went overseas with the, the uh, CAMC. Mildred was an exceptional administrator and an experienced nurse when she went overseas. She was the assistant to the matron-in-chief for a year during the middle of the war, but she insisted on going back overseas with her friend Laura Holland. And of course, Mildred became the acting matron of casualty clearing station number two for an entire year from 1917 through 1918, during some of the worst of the battles. Her friend, Laura Holland, was also from a fairly elite family. She too was born in Canada. I believe she was born in Nova Scotia, but her family moved to Toronto and then to Montreal. She was unusual in that she came to nursing late. Laura studied music and she taught music for 11 years. She was quite well-traveled for the time. She went by herself to Western Canada to teach music for a winter, and she'd also traveled to England before. She had plenty of relatives in England that she visited during the war, and she had also been to New York City. She came to nursing, as I said, late, so she was in her late 20s when she, too, entered the Montreal General School of Nursing. She graduated in 1913, 
and at some point became best friends with Mildred Forbes and, of course, went overseas with her in 1915. When Mildred was promoted, Laura, who obviously demonstrated plenty of executive ability herself, deliberately refused any promotion so that she could stay with her friend. And they went overseas for four years. Kate Wilson is another nurse who was somewhat different. She, too, did not go directly into nursing. She was a journalist before she was a nurse, and it was only when she had nursed her sister through an illness and the doctor suggested that she would make a good nurse that she decided to go to nursing school. She was born close to where I grew up in the small village of Chatsworth in rural Ontario, and she went to a nearby training school in Owen Sound. She managed to get overseas because she had a cousin in the Canadian War Office. I said competition was fierce and you did need influence to get a place overseas. These three are representative of most of the Canadian nurses in that the majority of Canadian nurses were born in Canada, approximately 83%, according to Cynthia Tolman's calculations, though many of them were British descent. And so both Kate Wilson and Laura Holland did visit relatives when they were in England. Some of the nurses were French-speaking. Two of the Canadian hospitals served French patients, and most of the nurses at those two hospitals were French-Canadian. The vast majority of the nurses, however, were English-Canadian. Their first language was English, and the majority of them were Protestant. Because the nurse training schools did not accept First Nations or women of color, such nurses usually went to the States to train, and some of them did serve with the American Army. And I know this, this next question is, is really, really massive, but what was the experience of nursing? Uh, and what, 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 are the, what, does your research, what stories does your research tell us about the experience of individuals in various theatres during the conflict? That really is a massive question because the experience depended on where you were located. So, for example, when the, Canadian, the first Canadian nurses arrived in France... Keeping in mind, these were all professional nurses. Uh, Canada did not have VADs or untrained nurses working, doing nursing work in their hospitals. These were professional nurses who were used to doing hospital work, but invariably when they did arrive in France, for instance, they were shocked by the horrific nature of the wounds and the sheer overwhelming number of casualties. But it was a very different experience working in France because France was well supplied with uh, surgical supplies, with comforts for the men, and had a very good support system. Whereas the Gallipoli campaign, as we all know, mismanagement did took place and the nurses there underwent hardships. The nurses also worked both in medical wards and, uh, and surgical wards. So a nurse's primary responsibilities in hospital would be first administrative to make sure that her ward got sufficient supplies of the right kind, 
Secondly, making sure that the condition was sanitary and she had orderlies to do much of the cleaning and she had command over them. Some nurses assisted in the operating rooms, which of course was quite intense work when convoys came in during the night. You might have 300 patients arrive and a number of those would need operations. So the nurses worked alongside the doctors for long and hard hours. Nurses also gave bedside treatment. They dressed wounds in, on the wards with and without doctor's assistance. And they were also responsible for all treatments given. So they did treat wounded patients, but they also, of course, with the changing circumstances of the war, had to treat victims of gas. They also had a number of medical cases, and so we know that soldiers suffered, for instance, from trench foot. They also caught pneumonia because of the conditions in the wintertime. And in particular theaters, such as Gallipoli, dysentery, for instance, was quite prevalent. And it was malaria in Salonika. So the nurses had quite heavy responsibilities. And besides all that nursing care, although this wasn't in listed in their their duties. They were also responsible for morale on the ward. So they looked after the whole patient. They tried to lift the patients in the ward spirits. They talked to the patients and found out their war stories and experiences. And they also arranged special treats at Christmas. They tried to get their patients extras in the way of food and make them as comfortable as possible because that was considered part of the recovery process. One of the experiences that most nurses had was the risk of shelling or of air raids. This was particularly prevalent during 1917 and 1918, not just at the casualty clearing stations, but also at the hospitals well back from the firing lines. And so in May 1918, number one Canadian general hospital was hit during bombing raids on a tap. One of the Canadian nurses was killed instantly and two others died of their wounds. Two nurses at another hospital in the same raid received the military medal for their courage in caring for patients. And when yet another hospital, number three Canadian stationary, was hit in a different bombing raid, two more nurses received the military medal because although wounded themselves, they crawled out from under the rubble put out the fires and evacuated their patients safely. So any assumption that nurses, even if they were in hospitals well back from the lines, were safe is simply not true. And yet they persevered throughout the bombing raids that occurred throughout that year. I would also add that the nurses at the four Canadian casualty clearing stations all had to evacuate their stations on short notice during the German advance in the spring of 1918. And so Claire Gass, another one of the Canadian nurses, reports in her journal that the nurses were given half an hour's notice to evacuate the station and remove themselves to another spot where they were treating patients that same afternoon. And how did the experience of Canadian nurses vary between two theatres? I think you've already touched on this with Salonika and Gallipoli, but were there major differences in the way that care was provided? The nursing on Lemnos for the patients from the Gallipoli campaign varied a great deal from conditions in France. For one thing, the Canadian units landed on Lemnos 
in the very early days when the hospitals had not been set up. So they were doing pioneering work there. But the nurses left very, very vivid accounts of their time there. They arrived on an island that was simply not prepared for medical work at all. So food, for example, had not been arranged for either the medical teams or their patients. The water was carted to the hospitals in tanks, and each nurse was given approximately a quart, a little, about a liter perhaps, per day for all purposes, including washing, and even less was available for the patients. And of course, their equipment had gone astray because they were expected to be in France, not in the Mediterranean. So the nursing work was quite hard, and it was also quite discouraging. The Canadian hospitals took in mostly lightly wounded, and they also took in, for the most part, patients with dysentery. So the patients from Gallipoli had been deprived of water and of food other than bully beef and jam while they were in the trenches. By the time they arrived at the hospitals, they were emaciated in very poor physical condition. The death rate was very, very high. And the nurses had to improvise. They did such things as, because medical supplies were not on hand, one of the nurses ended up touring her wards with dysentery mixture for the patients held in a large whiskey bottle. As I said, I believe the death rate among patients was very high, even though the nurses were doing their best. They justified their being there under such harsh circumstances by seeing the good that they were doing the patients. So the dysentery spread to the medical staff. Most of the nurses became ill. Uh, the matron of one of the Canadian hospitals died, and so did one of her nurses, and they are buried on the island. The other nurses persevered and carried on. Eventually, conditions did approve, did improve, but... The conditions did leave their mark on the nurses. Most of them ended up quite debilitated by the end of their stay there. If we compare that to France, where many of the patients had horrific wounds, but were in A1 physical condition otherwise, the difference in France was quite astonishing because although the patients there might have had horrific wounds, they were also in overall fine physical condition. They were not depressed as the patients on Gallipoli were, although they were quite ill from their wounds. So the emotional trauma of the two different places was different, and in fact, so is the treatment. It's very different dressing wounds and raising the morale of wounded patients than it is trying to cope with lack of food for patients and trying to raise the spirits of depressed patients in Gallipoli. So the level of supplies, the level of support was very different in those two theaters. Um, it's a striking contrast simply in what nurses had to do and what they had to cope with during their stay overseas. So when we actually look at some of the accounts of the nurses that you, you've actually uh, worked on, what sort of themes emerge in terms of uh, life on the wards? What actually happens in their personal life? Um, did they fall in love? Were they affected by uh, mental health issues? 
One of the things that comes through very strongly in the nurses' letters and diaries is their care for their patients. Sometimes they were overwhelmed by sheer numbers. That comes through very clearly in Claire Gass's diary, especially after battles. When they are caring for so many patients, it's hard to keep track. They were also struck by the nature of wounds and also by the patient's courage in dealing with those wounds. They shared many of the stories. I'm thinking of Laura Holland and Mildred Forbes in particular, who wrote letters home. They shared many stories of their patients with their families. And what comes through very clearly is their sympathy for and their empathy for patients. I'm thinking in particular of Mildred Forbes, who wrote home from a casualty clearing station in France about an organist who had just lost an arm. And she was not thinking in the usual patriotic discourse of soldiers as brave. She was thinking of a young man who had just lost his calling and how best to help him recover both from the emotional blow and the physical trauma. Another theme that comes through very clearly in the nurse's writings is the role of nurses' friendships in coping with the emotional traumas that they had to go through. This shows up in multiple nurses' diaries and letters, but I think it comes through most clearly in Mildred Forbes and Laura Holland's letters home. These two nurses were friends before they left for the war, and in the four years they spent overseas, they were never separated. They might have been separated for a weekend, but that was it. And you can read in their letters how much they depended on one another. And so when Mildred became ill with dysentery on Lemnos and she was confined to her tent for three weeks, of course it was her friend Laura who never left her side except to go on duty and who refused to go out of the bounds of the camp until her friend was well again. Those were the kinds of bonds that nurses developed and carried throughout the entire war and afterwards into their post-war lives. I mean, it's very interesting that sort of cohesion that they develop uh, as soldiers also develop very close relationships through, through stressful situations. Yes, that wasn't always the case. When you take a situation such as Lemnos, for instance, where supplies were short and each nurse had to fight to get supplies for her own ward, the nurses' letters also show frictions. They were having a difficult time with the British administration. They realized to the full the soldiers' dilemmas on Gallipoli, that it, the administration was causing them to be, in one nurse's words, slaughtered uh, due to the lack of care and also due to the poorly planned attacks. At the same time, there was friction amongst the nurses. They rebelled against the matron. They rebelled against the doctors. They raised what they call their common colonial voices to get things for their patients, to get them better care, and they succeeded in doing that. But once the nurses had left Lemnos, those irritations were all forgotten. Uh, they truly developed a sense of comradeship that did, in some cases, last a lifetime. And how did the contribution of nurses' war service uh, influence their views on the conflict? That's an interesting question because, of course, these were professional nurses who had worked in hospitals before going overseas. 
And yet the mere scope of the injuries and the illnesses that they had to cope with did change their perspectives. So, for example, Kate Wilson, who went over out of a sense of patriotism, knowing that her skills would be needed, thought that war was hellish after only a few months there. That, of course, was a view that most of the nurses did share. They wondered when this hell of a war would end. They wanted it to end. But at the same time, the thought that they were helping soldiers, that they were really doing some good, helped them to support the war. There are clear indications that even though they treated German patients just as well as they did their own, that they wanted this war won and that they supported it. How did the experience of war actually shape nurses' post-war views of the conflict and also their post-war lives? I think the overseas nurses had a large impact on Canadian life after the war, even though in some instances it took decades for that transformation to be seen. So many of the nurses did continue in the nursing profession after they returned from overseas, and they expanded sectors such as public health nursing, and so improving the health of the general population. Laura Holland did not, with her friend Mildred Forbes, stay in nursing immediately. She and other nurses left the field for social work, which was a very new field at the time. Now, Laura and Mildred did begin in that profession, but unfortunately, Mildred Forbes died in early 1921, and her friend Laura left Montreal, where they had been living, for Toronto. Interestingly, the job that she took eventually was with the Red Cross, and she established Red Cross outposts in northern Ontario, where there was little medical care. She later went west to Vancouver, where she returned to social work, and she actually improved the lives of families through shepherding through three different pieces of legislation that affected unmarried mothers, neglected children, and families. So she is one example in one given field of what many other nurses accomplished. They never forgot their comrades in wartime. The Canadian nurses actually started a veterans organization, not an official one, the Overseas Nursing Association, and it was open not just to those who had worked with the Canadian forces, but to any nurse who had been overseas with the Allied forces. And some chapters of that organization are open today. That organization existed so that nurses could continue to share their experiences, but it was also so that they could continue to help the families of male veterans who had fallen on hard times. So I think overall what we see when we look at Canadian history is that the overseas nurses quietly changed women's roles, they changed nursing, they were competent, they were organized, and they were professional. They had also survived the traumas of wartime, and they made their work felt in many fields, not just in nursing. And how is the contribution of Canadian Nurses' War Service during the Great War viewed in Canada today? 
I have to say that the nurse's role in the war has become more prominent, but you must understand that in Canada, the view of the first war is dominated by the Battle of Vimy Ridge. Male historians such as Jonathan Bance and Tim Cook have put this forth. This is not my own idea, but I most certainly agree with them. In Canada, the First World War is not viewed as total waste of men, as it may be in the UK. Instead, it's considered to be the war that created a nation. When the, the four Canadian Corps fought together for the first time at Vimy Ridge and won a great victory, that was considered to unify Canadians. And Canadian or Canada came out of the war as an independent nation with a unified population. In such a memory, battles are prevalent, and it's a very male battle-oriented view of the war. In such memories, women have little place. So I am pleased to say that nurses are now becoming remembered, but they are still very much on the periphery. Much more work needs to be done to acclaim them for the work they did and the changes they wrought, and also for the changes that they wrought in Canadian history across time. And finally, where can people find out more about your research? Well, I did edit the letters of Laura Holland and Mildred Forbes in a book called War Torn Exchanges. And I also have an upcoming article in the Journal of War and Culture that will be out in the fall. It's a study of nurses' photograph albums and the visual stories they told about their wars. I believe I also may have an article coming out in the Western Front Association's bulletin on Canadian nurses' experiences during the retreat in 1918. And I do have various other papers under... Well, I'm writing them as we speak, but I don't know where they will be placed yet. Andrea, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Tom. Again, it's been an honour to be here, and I thank you very much. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Buthworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time...